So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Of the five paragraph field order is always personally written by the commander and discussed by the commander, not the staff, but discussed by the commander with his subordinates. And so everybody understands when the communications goes out, when plan A goes to hell in a handbasket, we have to now go to plan B, C, D, E, or F. Everybody understood what the intent of the commander was. And we didn't have that before the mid-80s. And that helped everybody understand. They don't do that. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Craig Weldon. Craig, thanks for making time for this. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate the invitation. So let's talk about this background of yours. Major General in the Army, SES Marine Corps, leadership consultant, author. What am I missing there? Well, I've I've climbed a number of mountains in my lifetime, uh, starting when I was a a scout, I guess, when I was a teenager, and then student government and athletic leadership and so forth into college. I I joined the Army because I had a scholarship at college, and I had to pay back four years to the Army. And I thought at the time I was going to get out after four years and go join the State Department. That was plan A. I uh, actually majored in political science. And then four years turned into 30 years before I knew it. And I had a you know 30-year career in the uh, Army. After that, I retired. That was about 18 years ago. I retired, went to Florida, went into the private sector. And about five years into that, my wife said, I want to go back to Hawaii. Well, Hawaii was our last assignment in the, in the Army. And I said, Karen, Hawaii is really, really expensive. I'd have to get a job. And she said, good idea. <laughs> so... <laughs> I started looking for opportunities to get back to Hawaii and the Marine Corps created a brand new executive uh, position, senior executive position to move 10,000 Marines out of Okinawa to Guam and to build a base in Guam. And I threw my name in the hat and uh, was convinced that I would never get selected because uh, the Marine Corps is kind of anal about who they bring into their fold. And if you're not a former Marine, you're, you're not worthy of breathing their air. I say that tongue in cheek a little bit, but they're, they're a special group of people and they're different and in a very good way. So I was pleasantly surprised when the Marine Corps said, come on board. And I did that for nine wonderful years back in Hawaii. And then a couple of years ago, my wife said, I'm ready to move back to the mainland. We're too far from family. And I said, okay, where? And she said, East coast. I don't want to be too cold. I don't want to be too hot. And that's how we settled on Bluffton, South Carolina. So a little over a year since we've been here, we built a house in Bluffton, South Carolina. I hung my shingle out and said, I'm an author and a speaker, and uh, the book has done very well. It's won three national awards, 
It's a number one international bestseller in five countries. Many people buy copies of the book every time I speak about leadership. And I've been, even with COVID, I've been kind of on the speaker circuit, mostly on Zoom for the last year. But as things start to clear up, I've got some things scheduled as far out as November. So it's another ladder to climb and I'm at the bottom of it, but I'm enjoying it. It's all about the journey more than the destination. And my charge to myself is to give back to the next generation those things that I've learned in the past 40 or 50 years. That's great. Well, I've been enjoying the book. If anybody listening wants to check it out, go to Craig's website, craigweldon.com. And Weldon is W-H-E-L-D-E-N. And get your copy of Leadership, The Art of Inspiring People to Be Their Best. Can we can we just talk about a couple stories from it? Do you want to pick one of your favorite stories and let's start there? Sure. I actually put a chapter on my website and I'll, I can talk about that. People can read about it. It's called The Light at the End of the Tunnel. And uh, when I was a brand new lieutenant coming out of Purdue University, I, my first assignment was at Fort Hood, Texas. And I went down there in 1973 and I came back to Indiana where Purdue is and got married to my college sweetheart in the spring of 1974. And then she joined me down at Fort Hood. Had never spent any time in the military before. So this was a bit of a new experience. And I thought we were having a, she was wonderful in many, many different ways. But after two years, she left me and I was absolutely crushed. And I thought this was the end of the world. I really did. I had never really had a major failing in my life until then. And so the way I dealt with that, rather than go home at the end of every day, I stayed at work. I was a tank battalion maintenance officer and I took care of 58 tanks and about another 50 vehicles. And I would just stay at work at the end of the day. And I found myself there one Friday night about 7.30 when the brigade commander walked in the motor pool. Friday night at 7.30. The only people in the motor pool were me and the guards the people who were guarding the motor pool. And I thought, boy, what a perfect storm of bad luck. Here I am going through all these personal problems and the brigade commander, who was about a thousand levels above me, was coming down to inspect the uh, motor pool. So he said, Lieutenant Weldon, let's go take a walk in the motor pool. So I got up from my desk. I was near the front gate and we walked up and down the tank line back and forth. And he never spoke about maintenance. He never spoke about the appearance or the condition of the tanks. And he never talked about my personal problems. But what he talked about were the challenges that he had faced in his life and how he had overcome them. And when we got back to the front gate, he put his arm on my shoulder and he said, you know, there's light at the end of this tunnel. You just can't see it yet. Have a great weekend. And this is a man who had 4,000 soldiers in his organization. And I was just one of 4,000. And we had never met until that night. But my battalion commander, the intermediary com commander, in fact, several, still several levels above me, had told him about this uh, lieutenant in the battalion that was going through a tough time and could use a little help and encouragement. So he really took me out of the low point and helped me understand that somebody cared because I was kind of wallowing in my own self-misery at that point. So about four or five months later, I left Fort Hood and I went to Fort Knox, Kentucky and was attending a course there, a six-month course and during the course, I met a, a young lady named Karen Lusk, who was local. I met her at a wedding. One of my former bosses was getting married. I was a groomsman. She was a bridesmaid. I thought, wow, I, I think I'll go check her out. <laughs> and, you know, this year we will have been married 44 years. Hey, and I cannot, I cannot imagine life turning out differently than it did. I have two wonderful children, adult children now, obviously, 
They have their own families. I have the finest grandchild uh, in the planet, I'm, I think. He's five years old, uh, lives in Japan. And, you know, as I reflect back on the past many decades, I think, wow, I couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel in 1976, but it was there. And Colonel Jack Woodmansey told me it was there. Now, fast forward, about 13 years later, I was a uh, battalion commander myself. I had a thousand soldiers of my own. And I heard at Fort Knox, Kentucky, that's where I was, I heard that uh, Lieutenant General, three-star general, Jack Woodmansey was coming to Fort Knox, Kentucky on a visit. So I called the protocol office and I said, hey, I'd love to have him come over and talk to my officers about leadership. I had 40 to 50 officers. And I said, I used to work for him when I was a lieutenant years ago at Fort Hood, Texas. Can you ask him if he would do that? They did. He agreed. He came over. And when I introduced him, I told my officers that story about that motor pool, that walk in the motor pool in 1976. And that, you know, I can replay that in my mind. I don't know how many times. And I guess the point to your audience is showing people in your organization that you care is incredibly important and it doesn't take a lot of work and it stays with people forever. And I forget a lot of things, I can guarantee you, but I've never forgotten that walk in the motor pool and what it did for me. And that's what I call a rock in my rucksack that I've carried with me my entire life and used many times. It's it's interesting how sometimes those simple things have such profound experiences, right? But it's it's that deep human-to-human -human connection that seems to make all the difference, doesn't it? It, it truly does. The sincerity of uh, a leader comes through. I worked for a, another three-star general one time. I was his deputy. I was a two-star at the time. And he was a consummate gentleman. Absolutely never raised his voice. Very, very bright. Very organized. Very, very capable leader. And a colonel came up to me one time and he said, you know, General so-and-so is the toughest guy I have ever worked for. And I thought, are you kidding me? How can that possibly be? And he said, because I never wanted to disappoint him. And I thought, wow, that speaks volumes. That speaks volumes for the character of the leader that we had in the organization, that people in that organization woke up every day wanting to go to work to do their very, very best for the organization, obviously, and for their own professional reasons. But one of the main reasons was not to disappoint the boss, because that would have been the worst thing that could possibly happen. I've worked for, and many people in your audience, I'm sure, have worked for what we call screamers, people who lead by intimidation, people lead by raising their voice, and so forth. And I can tell you that the most effective leadership I have witnessed in my career, in my lifetime, have been soft-spoken leaders who inspire you naturally because of who they are. And because of that, the last thing you want to do is disappoint them. And that gets the extra 10% out of you and everybody else in the organization. They don't have to do a whole lot. You just sort of point in the direction, say that's the direction we need to go, and everybody takes them that way. I, I was a tanker uh, cavalry guy my entire career until I became a colonel and they slated me to be a commander. And they, they told me I was going to command a base. And I said, I don't know anything about base operations and I don't care to learn. I'm a tanker. That's what I've trained to do for my entire career. Well, I ended up being a base commander anyway. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I learned more about leadership than I ever would have had I stayed in the traditional lane that I had been in up to that point. Why? Because I went from 100% male, kind of a macho environment, to 3,000 employees who 95% were civilians, 50% were female, 
50% were uh, Germans because I had a base in Germany. I had to do things like, you know, pay all the utility bills, build new buildings, take care of childcare centers, hold town halls, do labor union negotiations, things I had never done in my life before. And at the 20 year point in my career, now I was doing them for the very first time. And so I told my organization when I got there, look, I trust you until you demonstrate that you're not worthy of that trust. And I'm counting on you to help me be successful. And the way we do that is for you helping me to help you be successful. Point me towards the things you need help with and let me help you and tell me what you need, because I don't know much about running a base and all of you do. And I, you know, I had a wonderful experience doing that. I didn't know it at the time. It was another one of those light at the end of the tunnel things. I was in a kind of a professional dark place. I think, well, that's it. I'm done. I'm finished. And next thing you know, I'm a brigadier general and then I'm a major general. And, and part of the reason is because I trusted my subordinates uh, to show me the way. You know, I'd love to talk about that topic. You know, one of the, the big themes we're focusing on on the show this year is, you know, I'm trying to get all these different kinds of experts on the show to talk about advice for entrepreneurs and investors and philanthropists of more with less. How can we achieve more taking less risk? How can we, you know, have more positive impact in the world with less investment? You know, these kind of things, right? And we're, one of the companies I own is a, it's called Greystoke Advisors. We teach like operational excellence, continuous improvement, kind of like how do you take Toyota production system stuff and apply it to finance and healthcare and military and all sorts of clients, right? And it's been fascinating. You know, I went I went over to Japan and did tours of Toyota and then went Toyota suppliers and Honda and these other places. And this concept that you talk about of, of trusting the people who are actually doing the work, I mean, those guys have, have become extremely dominant in the auto industry by doing that. Instead mm-hmm. of having the people behind the desks in an office somewhere make all the decisions, it's this like, trusting the people closest to the problem. Now they, they train them well enough that they can trust them. Right. And and I've got to say to me, like the number one place I've ever seen that in America is is in the military. You know, I we've, you know, our listeners know we've had a number of folks from the Army Special Mission Unit on the show, you know, and I think that's an organization that like does a lot of what you're talking about of like they select really well, they tr- and then they train the very lowest, you know, their E5s, E6s doing like singleton missions, some of them, right? And they train them so well that they can actually trust them, but then they actually do trust them. Yeah. And and they have accomplished some things that that you know, arguably <laughs> depending what branch you're from, the top counterterrorism unit in the world, right? And can you talk about this idea of the humility it takes as a leader to bite your tongue and trust your people or to yeah. so I can uh, give them the room to grow, things like this? Yeah, the military wasn't always like that. And I was in the military for 30 years. I was in uniform for 30 years and was with the Marine Corps as a senior civilian, but around the uniformed uh, Marines for another nine years. So I've got about 40 years of experience, direct experience with the military. And I can tell you that in the late 70s, coming out of Vietnam, there was a, what we called a zero defects mentality that you couldn't make mistakes. And if you did make mistakes, you were gone. And, 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 and we realized, I think in the early eighties was about the time we realized that's not a good way to do things. You need to, we now have some of your listeners have probably heard the term, the strategic corporal. What that means is that a corporal in the army, a corporal in the Marine Corps can make decisions out there on the battlefield that can have strategic implications. 
They truly do, particularly in this age of, of, you know, video cameras everywhere and instant information. It is unlike it was years ago where you can kind of cover things up or uh, ensure that they don't get seen. But let me back up to the 80s. There's a couple of things that happened in the 80s. One of the things we created then was a concept called the After Action Review, uh, AAR for short. And the After Action Review for your listeners was taken an operation or a training exercise after it's completed and then reviewing what did we just do? How did we do it? How, what did we do right? And what did we do wrong? And peeling that onion back all the way to the core to determine what mistakes did we make that we don't want to make again. And those things were always started by the leader of the organization standing up and clearing the decks and saying, let me tell you what I did wrong. Now, this is completely anathema to some foreign militaries and, quite frankly, some NATO allies of ours. I spent 10 years in Europe uh, with NATO allies, Germans and Dutch and, and, and French and Canadians and, and all kinds of allies watching the way they operate. And they didn't have that level of openness that we did. And part of the reason for our success is we were willing to do that. And when you can stand up as a leader and, and to say that, you know that your subordinates now feel free to be able to stand up and say the same thing about the mistakes that they made and what they learned from it so that they don't make those same mistakes again. The AAR has become such an ingrained part of us that I do that in my personal life subconsciously all the time. Whenever I do anything, I do a quick AAR in my head. You know, it's interesting. I, I had had very little exposure to DOD. I mean, my grandpas were both in World War II. My father-in-law was 82nd Airborne. You know, I have cousins and stuff. But but me personally, I didn't have much military exposure until maybe eight, nine years ago, start doing leadership training across DOD with these different clients. And it's interesting to me, like, how they're like the, the uniqueness of the way the military world works and, and the fact that you can legally order someone to do something unlike your job where people can just quit on you at a moment's notice. Right. The, like there's such, there's such a polarization of like some of the most inspiring leaders of my life have been clients of mine and, and people who have, you know, come out of especially a special operations community that volunteered at our at child rescue association, our charity and stuff. And then, and yet there's other folks, just like any organization, there's, there's folks that we're not as proud of, right. You know, like there's some of those leaders that you like that joke, the cliche of like, you know, if the army wanted you to have a brain, they'd issue you one, <laughs> you know, like th this idea of like, you know, a few of these organizations where people are just like paralyzed. Well, like you talk to them, about, do you want to do this or that? And they like, they don't have an opinion it's like, well, I'd really have to, I'd really have to find out what the Colonel wants. And, you know, like, and they just yeah. they, like this place of fear and the like, and it's almost like uh, there's the politicking and the politician-ish type of like uh, very much about appearances. And then you get these other guys who like just really self-sacrifice, servant leadership, humility, like treating people extremely well who can do nothing for them. I've seen such like stellar examples of that in, in, in the U.S., Department of Defense. And it's it's inspiring to me as, as a civilian, you know? Yeah. If you go to Fort Benning, Georgia, in front of Infantry Hall, there's a statue. And in front of the statue, there's an inscription. It says, follow me. And the statue is of a leader. And it could be a sergeant, could be a lieutenant, a, a junior leader with all his battle rattle stuff on, carrying his weapon, helmet, and all the other things he carries. And he's got his arm and he's going like this. 
and he's turning his head slightly to the right so that the people behind him can hear him, and it says, follow me. And so there's a number of things that are takeaways from that statue. One is that the leader's in front, leading by example. That's the first thing. Secondly, he's not behind them at the point of with a bayonet in their back saying, go that way, like we've seen evidence of in, in you know history too many times. He inspired his soldiers in such a way that he didn't have to worry about were they there ready to sacrifice their life because he knew they would be there because he is an inspirational leader. And so he's just saying, follow me and do what I do. Let me tell you another story about something that came out of the 80s. We have a process in the army, in the military, not just the army, but in the military called the five paragraph field order. And it basically is a construct for issuing instructions. And it starts out with situation, then mission, execution, logistics, command and signal. And it's supposed to kind of cover the gamut of areas of consideration for any operation. And some of them are short, but they're used at every level from the youngest sergeant to the four-star general. The five paragraph field order is the way we tell organizations what we wanna do, what we want them to do and what we, how we want them to do it. In the mid eighties, we added a portion into execution called commander's intent. And the purpose of that was so that the commander himself or herself could sit down and write, this is my intent. So that when things go crazy on the battlefield, which they will, the first time something, the shot is fired, everybody in the organization knows what the intent is. And the intent is to get to the objective in a such a way at a certain time with a certain size force, whatever, whatever the intent is. That section of the five paragraph field order is always personally written by the commander and discussed by the commander, not the staff, but discussed by the commander with his subordinates. And so everybody understands when the communications goes out, when plan A goes to hell in a handbasket, we have to now go to plan B, C, D, E, or F, everybody understood what the intent of the commander was. And we didn't have that before the mid eighties. And that helped everybody understand. They don't do that in some militaries. The former Soviet Union and presumably now the Russians are exactly the same way. When I was a Lieutenant Colonel operations officer for an army division in Germany, right after the cold war ended, I led a uh, delegation to Hungary. The first military to military exchange program that we did, I led into Hungary. And we went in there and they gave us a dog and pony show demonstrating to us, you know, how they trained and so forth. And they put us up in these dashes and so forth. I mean, they really treated us like VIPs. I was only a Lieutenant Colonel. When we did an exchange and they came to us, we did the same reciprocal kind of visit for them. So we could get to know each other because Hungary desperately wanted to become part of NATO at the time. I remember when they had a static display of their equipment, they only had officers, captains and majors at the equipment, briefing what the equipment capabilities were and answering questions that we might ask. When we did it and we brought them over, we had sergeants doing it, the people who actually ran the equipment. So for example, an M1 tank, we would have the tank commander as the briefer and we would allow the generals because they sent generals over to ask questions of the sergeant. They couldn't believe that. They couldn't believe that we would allow our young non-commissioned officers to, to answer questions 
from generals. It was just completely foreign to them, no pun intended. We even had them have lunch with our junior enlisted men outside of earshot, which just blew them away because we had the trust in our organization and the people in our organization to, to be able to talk candidly and demonstrate it. It was, it was probably the biggest takeaway they took when they went back to Hungary was not the quality of our equipment, but the quality of our junior leaders and the trust that we put into them. You know, to me, it's just, this is such a clear example of more with less to me. And, and again, I go back to the operational excellence, continuous improvement, lean, whatever you want to call that, that, that echoes a lot of the same principles you've just talked about. Um, it's interesting because it requires humility for me to not just believe I'm the guy with the best ideas, right? Uh, it requires a humility of for me to like realize in the long term it's better to let them make some mistakes now instead of fix everything along the way and you know micromanage people, right? But yeah. it's crazy how by letting the people next to the work make the decisions and and take personal responsibility for things instead of it's always the boss's problem, right? It's funny how like giving them essentially more work and more responsibility, they actually like their jobs better. Yeah, they <laughs> you know? do. It's like, you get to do less as a leader, your people actually like being here more and your results go up. It's like the best yeah, of all uh, worlds. <laughs> <It's>, but, <laughs> but then I feel like it requires humility. It requires me biting my tongue. It requires me not stepping in. You know, like there's some, some of those like ego sacrifices that I have to make, which yeah. I should probably be making anyways. And then you get like, a, you know, a threefer. That's what it feels like to me. Do you see it differently or how do you think about it? No, I see it the same way. When, you know, when I, when I wrote my book, I had 24 chapters and each one of them was tied to leadership and life lessons in some way. My editor, when we were trying to put it together, he said, what it, do you believe is the most important component or aspect of leadership? And I said, character, having a strong character, because you've mentioned certain aspects of character. Humility is one of them. Integrity is one of them. Empathy is one of them. Self-awareness, perseverance, ambition. Those are all components of leadership. Taking response or character, a, a strong character, taking responsibility uh, of a leader as a leader, often when it includes sacrificing your own well-being. Anyway, I said to him, I think character, having a strong character is the most important aspect of leadership. And he said, okay, then that should be chapter one. And I said, great. And it is. If you go to my book, the first chapter in my book is about character, because I don't think anything else matters. You can have the most dynamic personality in the world. If you have a flawed character, you, it's going to show at some point, at <laughs> time and time and time and time again. It makes me think of a Warren Buffett quote. He's kind of my business hero, right? And he says, you want somebody who's super intelligent, super hardworking with incredibly high integrity. Mm -hmm. And he said, and the third one's the most important because if they don't have the third one, yeah. <laughs> and they're super yeah, intelligent, super hardworking, you're going to get taken to the cleaners, yeah. right? But yeah. you think about this, how that relates to this concept of more with less again. You know, you think, I don't care if you're a business owner and you need to sell clients, you're an investor and you need to either sell joint venture partners or the bank to finance you or the 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 people that you're trying to invest with that you're the right financial partner or philanthropist, you're trying to get the government to partner with you, trying to get this nonprofit, you're always selling. If you're leading, you're selling or influencing might be a better word, recruiting, okay? And you think about that cliche that like people aren't buying your stuff as much as they're buying you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, character is like such an unfair advantage of like, those like little, like doing the hard right thing instead of the easy wrong thing, even when nobody's right. looking, right. you look at like how that shows up 
over the years for people and that difference of long-term thinking versus short-term thinking. I, I, and I guess my question for you on that is, I can see you nodding your head. I, I'm not surprised you agree. But my question is, I don't think there's any of us, probably nobody listening to this show, watch on going, man, I've got low character, you know? Like we, we all naturally think, oh, like I'm an above average driver. I've got above average integrity, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. So my question is, any advice you have of how to get more radically self-honest, how to take a look in the mirror and and look for the places where our actions don't line up with our stated integrity or stated character? Yeah, so self-awareness is a component of character. And I will tell you that I believe a lot of senior leaders don't have a strong sense of self-awareness. They don't look at themselves in the mirror and see the same thing that other people see oftentimes. And let me use a couple of examples to, to illustrate that point. In 30 years in the Army, I had two opportunities to have peers of mine evaluate me. The first one was in ranger school in 1973, because if you don't demonstrate that you're a good team player, you won't graduate from ranger school. And so your fellow ranger students will evaluate your ability to be a good team player. That was the first opportunity. The next time I saw that was when I was a general officer. And when you're a general officer in the Army, the chief of staff of the Army's office sends a survey out once a year, and they ask three questions of your peers, other generals at the same grade, the same number of stars that you have. Do you know this officer? If the answer is no, you just move to the next officer. If the answer is yes, then you have two more questions to answer. Would you recommend him or her for command? And would you recommend him or her for promotion? And that's it. So you fill out that survey every year, you send it back in, it goes into some computer, I suppose, and there's algorithm, but it helps the chief of staff of the army understand his general officers. Now in the army, there are about 300 general officers. In the Marine Corps, there are less than 100 general officers. And so everybody kind of knows everybody in the Marine Corps at that level. That's not the case in the Army because the Army's or the Navy or the Air Force, they all have about 300 each. So it's a little harder to get to know everybody else. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is those are the only two times in 30-year career that I did what your audience may recognize as a 360-degree evaluation. Now, when I became a senior executive for the Marine Corps, they sent me to schooling, some kind of schooling once a year. Typically, it was about a, a one-week course. One of the courses I went to was called Leadership at the Peak, run by the Center for Creative Leadership, and it was all about self-awareness. Prior to us attending, and there were only 12 students in this course, I was the only person from the federal government as a senior executive for the Marine Corps. Everybody else was a C-suite individual and about a third of them were from some other country than the United States. But anyway, in the buildup to the course in the months beforehand, they did all kinds of assessments and evaluations and 360 degree evaluations for the students ahead of time. So that when you walked in on day one, they had a bulletin board on the right-hand side and they had these graphs posted, no names, just these graphs. And the graphs reflected what everybody thought about you. And it also showed what you thought about you. <laughs> so you could compare, you know, what do I think I'm like and what do others think I'm like? Because they would ask my subordinates, my peers, and my boss. And they, all that would go into this uh, computer and it would spit out these graphs. And as I looked at these 12 different graphs, I think about 10 of them had a wide divergence 
between what the person thought about himself, what he was like or she was like, and what others thought they were like. And the whole purpose of the course was to close that gap because in most cases, the person thought higher of themselves than everybody else did. And so it was a splash of cold water on the face for most of those. Now, your listeners are probably wondering about what my chart looked like. I think I had a pretty good sense of self-awareness because the two lines were almost layered on top of each other. And in some cases, uh, they were on the other side. You know, people thought more highly of them, of, of me, than, than I thought of myself in certain components of my leadership skills, my character, uh, my personality, and all the different things that they measured. And there were dozens and dozens of different measurements that they were uh, looking at. So self-awareness is an important aspect of character is kind of the bottom line. And too many people don't. So I have encouraged through the, and I, and I had to take a 360 degree evaluation every three years as a senior executive in the Marine Corps. And I think that's the case throughout the senior executive force across the federal government. So I'm a big fan of 360 degree evaluations because it, it shows the emperor who's not wearing any clothes that in fact he is naked. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing to intentionally choose that, right? And yet how valuable, right? It's like this idea of, I guess, you know, because I think about when people do that insincerely, I think there's a cartoon in The New Yorker where a boss goes up to an employee and says, I want you to tell me exactly what you think of me, even if it costs you your job. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And, and that idea of like, you know, you know if we are going to ask, do we actually mean it? Do we actually want the answer? Or do we just want everybody to tell us we're great? Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Right. And, and I think it's pretty natural human to hope that it comes back, you're doing pretty good or you're pretty great. But the idea of like intentionally going like having that radical self-honesty, I'm an imperfect human and I'm going to go, I'm going to hunt those things out and figure out, you know, like what I'm going to do about it. Because there, there's certainly some things like, you know, Michael Jordan didn't make a lot of money playing baseball. So why don't we all figure out what our basketball is and double down on that? Mm -hmm. Right. But then there's, there's other things about character, character, integrity, you know, do I, do I interrupt people? Simple respect things like that. You know what I mean? That. I don't care if you're Michael Jordan or not. How about we all work on that one? You know, empathy, respect for others. Um, so I, I had a, and I'll, I won't name the individual, but I'm, I'm, I know of a four-star general. He's long ago retired from the army who wrote a book after he retired. And one of the things he said in his book was the other general officers in the army didn't really like him very much because he was so smart because of his intelligence. And I would tell you that if he would substituted the word arrogance for intelligence, he would have been, had been spot on. It was his arrogance is the reason other general officers didn't like him, not his intelligence. And he was a very, very bright guy, but he was also a very, very arrogant leader. And, and those are not the kind of leaders that inspire. Interesting how it cancels out, isn't it? It does. Doesn't matter how smart he is. That level of arrogance just turned people off. You know, I know we're kind of winding up here for time. When you think about, you know, we, we've covered a number of different subjects here. When you think about something you want to end with, what what is a good thing for us to end with? You know, I would tell people life is a journey. It's not a destination. You're constantly learning. I, I have a story called How Tall Is Your Ladder? It's one of the chapters in my book. And it's basically is, uh, and I won't tell the story. I'll let anybody who's interested, they can go get the book and read it. But it basically says, you know, life is like climbing a ladder and everybody's got a last rung on their ladder somewhere. 
certainly strive to achieve that rung on the ladder, but be satisfied when you get there. Because if you keep striving for the next rung on the ladder, eventually you're going to be disappointed. What's the number of people who actually get to the very top of the ladder? The military is a classic example. You know, if the military is a ladder, when you start at the bottom, your feet are on the ground and you grab the first rung. But the very top rung on the military ladder is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. General Mark Milley happens to be the current chairman. How many of us are going to attain that level? Not many, clearly. So occasionally I would find colonels who were very, very talented, who were former commanders, who were very, very bright, much smarter than I am, who didn't become generals. And they were very, very disappointed and bitter. And some of them carried that bitterness with them into their retirement, sometimes for years. I've got a good friend who still talks about how close he was and how uh, much he missed. And he's bitter because he thinks people did get selected who were less worthy than he was. And what I told him was, you know, put the past behind you, look forward, find another ladder to climb. And that's what I did when I retired from military from the Marine Corps a year and a half ago, is I started on a brand new ladder. It's called author and speaker. And I'm at the bottom of that ladder. And I'm now 69 years old. So it's never too late to start something new. And this is an amazing, exciting, and fun journey for me. And I don't know where the last rung on this ladder is for me, but I think I'll recognize it when I get there and I'll get off this ladder and get on another one. You know, I I really appreciate that message. I I really love a book by Ryan Holiday called The Obstacle is the Way, where he goes through a lot of stoic philosophy and then puts more modern stories with it to kind of bring it to life. And, you know, the first two chapters, I think, would go along with a a lot of popular books in the business world. You know, the first one's about your mentality and, you know, thinking right, having your head on straight and you know, change your perspective, you can change your situation. The second one's about action. The middle chapters are all about, you know, thinking about it isn't enough, right? And and the actions you change completely change everything. And the third one I didn't expect. The third, the third part of the whole book is about will. And it's like the will to accept things that you can't change. And, you know, we have a lot of, we have a lot of people who accept limitations they don't need to. And so as a result, we get speakers and authors talking so much about you know, don't take no for an answer. Don't, don't accept limitations and these things, but they kind of, they kind of miss the other side of that spectrum of like, there's a lot of things out of our control. There probably were worse individuals than that guy who did get promoted. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like that's life. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there, there's a lot of chance. There's a lot of probability. There's a lot of timing in life. And if our happiness is tied to an outcome solely, that's you. That's a big gamble yes, because sir. there's so many aspects that are not within our control, right? And and like having like the mental wherewithal to accept those things we can't change, I don't hear that message a lot in modern success literature and keynote speeches and and articles out there today. So I, I appreciate that message of, and I guess there's an optimism there of, hey, you like you win some, you lose some, right? But, but you don't have to give up. You don't have to roll over and die either. You, you can right. pick up a new sport. That's today. right. That's all right. That's right. A quick, quick story. When you say pick up a new sport, I was a pretty good baseball player when I was in Little League. My dad was in the Air Force and he got assigned to Paris, France. Well, guess what they don't have in France? <laughs> so that ended any baseball aspirations that I ever had. And I had to find a new sport. So I did. I became a basketball player and I played tennis in in through the rest of my high school years but when i got to paris france and i thought i looked around for where's the baseball (laughs) 
opportunities and there were none, I thought, well, there's a lot of neat things about living in Paris, France that I can substitute for baseball. So I think I'll accept it and move on. And I did. It's interesting there. And this is kind of a a happiness choice. And I think as leaders, we, we have, our emotions are pretty contagious across organizations a lot. And us making choices towards happiness gives permission for other people to as well. Mm-hmm. You think about this idea of like staying bitter is a choice. Like it, we may have a knee jerk reaction to feel bitter and how much we accept in it, how long we indulge in it, how long it takes to, to get out of that really is a lot due to us, you know, right. and this like humility to accept life and move on instead of to, to grasp, like instead of to set it hold on to bitterness, I think about arguments and, and, you know, business dealings that went bad where I held on to bitterness and like their life didn't get any worse because I was, because I was carrying this around with me. It's, it's only my life and my family and the people that I complain to. Right. Yeah. You know, I was looking down at my phone, trying to remember something here because I've, you made me think about something for your listeners on HBO. There's a show called the weight of gold and it's produced by Michael Phelps. And he, it's a documentary and he talks about the weight of gold, you know, going after the gold at the Olympics and what that does to Olympic athletes, some of which have committed suicide after they attain the gold medal. And Michael Phelps contemplated suicide at one time. And here's a guy who's won more gold medals than anybody in the history of the Olympics. And after the Olympics was over, he reflected on his life and he said, I'm a, I can only identify as a swimmer and nothing else. And my swimming days are over. So I've got to, I've got to reinvent myself in some way. And too many people have, are so focused on that one goal, whatever that goal is. It doesn't have to be sports. It could be making money. It could be getting into a certain college. It could be whatever it is. They are so focused on that, that if they fail in achieving that, life is over. And I reflect back to the story I told at the beginning of this podcast about the light at the end of the tunnel. I, I was in a dark place in 1976, because I thought, wow, my life is just falling apart. And it wasn't. I just hadn't seen, I just hadn't turned the corner in the tunnel yet and seen the light at the other end of the tunnel. And regrettably, young people oftentimes, when they face their first crisis in their life, too often take the easy way out and commit suicide. I've got a story in my book, chapter 19, which talks about my sister's suicide. It's too long a story for this podcast, the remaining time we have. But the point is that had my sister on Christmas Eve of 1999 realized what her kids' futures were going to look like and the grandchildren that she didn't have at that time, but she would have now, she may have made a different decision than she did. She took her life too young, and now she would have had so much to be proud of if she could be here. So... You know, it's it's so tough and it, it makes me think about this year on mental health. And I know we're out of time, but I, I love the story that you started today with. And, you know, I think about how many leaders we talk about engaging our people and we talk about our culture. And I heard a really interesting test from somebody. I think it was a Damien Dayton, the guy used to, he, he's at one of our client organizations called Creatively, really smart marketer. I believe it was him who said something about, you know, you you profess to care about your people so much. You profess to care about your culture so much. You want them to give so much dedication to you. But what are you doing for them when you're not on the clock? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that story that you started of like, you know, your officer coming over, colonel coming over and 
you know, arguably not on the clock at the time. Friday night, right? Yeah, yeah. taking taking his Friday night to come check on you, right? And and you know, no, it was not some expected leadership one on one, which probably would have been great as well. Okay. But yeah. that like going the extra mile when it wasn't expected, that like caring about our people at that level in this human to human way, checking in on them. And like, you know, there's a lot of COVID people who are really burned out. They've been watching the news too much. So they're depressed, yeah. right? They've been alone. They haven't been, their routines are screwed up. They're maybe, you know, salaries have gone down. Business revenue has gone down. You know, there's all sorts of things that like, you know, it's really easy to go like, how you doing? And we get the five minute answer or the two minute answer, but we don't get the, we don't get what's underneath because it takes time for people to believe we actually care about the answer. So yeah. I really appreciate you starting with that story. Everybody, please check out Craig's website, go to craigweldon.com, get your copy of the book, consider hiring him to be a keynote speaker. Craig, I appreciate you doing this. I, I feel like I gained a lot from it today. Thanks, Jess. I appreciate the invitation. Bye everyone.